everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Audio up. <coughs> Reunion audio? You have a prepaid call. You will not be I'm Anna Dalvey, and this is The Anna Dalvey Show. You might recognize my name as a character in a Netflix series, but now you get to meet the real me. On this show, I will dive into the concept of rules and talk with the people who create or break them. From art, politics, fashion, tech, finance, law, and more, The Anna Delvey Show will share honest, unfiltered conversations that will question traditional notions of what's right and wrong, all recorded in my East Village apartment in New York while on house arrest. In an art world, Kenny Schachter is many things. Critic, artist, dealer, you name it. But he will tell you first he's an outsider. Is he though? We definitely have a lot to connect on feeling like you don't belong. Is it a self-imposed position? Do we have control over it? I've had a tough time understanding how others perceive me. So maybe Kenny can help shed some light onto that. We're also joined by our producer, Sean Glass. Hi, Kenny. Hello. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. Thanks um, for having me. <laughs> why did you agree to, um, to talk not? to me? <laughs> why not? You seem like a nice enough person. I didn't watch your TV show or anything. I didn't make it through the first episode. I didn't watch it either. I found it a little bit annoying. I did watch Harry and Meghan episode four, five, six. <laughs> But you said um, Anna Delvey's story was the dullest, most pretentious, banal-ending story I ever heard in my life. Sounds like something I made. Where did I say that? I should go to jail if that's the key to success. (laughs) I think you and I should teach. I have an idea. We teach a class for Harvard Business School. (laughs) Oh, yeah? (laughs) How to make small crime into big business. (laughs) Oh, yeah. What's your claim, do you think? I don't... I'm just a... I'm a nobody. Because... My, one of my closest friends of years past, he stole $86 million. Yeah. I just thought, like, you stole, I mean, I don't know, I don't even know the nature of what you did. Not guilty. Not guilty, <laughs> as charged. Well, first of all, I think, like, your friends, like, I think of the Tinder swindler situation. And if this guy is going on dates with people and being, I mean, he, these people loaned him money. Yeah. And then... Somehow that turns into some kind of a scandal. If you have friends that are giving you their credit cards and you're going on holidays and stuff, which is like the part I caught in episode one of your HBO show, I mean, yeah, why am I, why, I just said that because I just think the amount is so small, it should be like traffic court. court. Yeah. And it's been totally- In relationship to like Jolo, the Malaysian uh, guy who's on the run right now in China, he stole $10 billion of like, poor Malaysian taxpayers' money with the, in cahoots with the president of the company. And then he did it in conjunction with Goldman Sachs. I always say there's more. People say the all world is the last unregulated multi-billion dollar business, which I guess was before crypto, which by far is way more uh, corrupt than the art world. 
but there's more crime in one hour at lunchtime at Goldman Sachs than there is in most other industries in the world, but that's condoned somehow. So I mean, I, w I didn't mean to be mean-spirited <laughs> or dismissive of you. I like that painting very much that is, oh, I'm sitting across from. Well, you have to say now. You have to say that now. Oh, I don't have to say anything. <laughs> I could care less. If I didn't like it, I would tell you. I wouldn't mind taking it home with me, actually. But I just thought just, I mean, I guess in relationship to Joe Lowe stealing 10 billion, Sam Bankman-Fried stealing 32 billion, uh, Inigo, my friend, stole 86 million. So I thought you were prosecuted for like 250,000 and that's really like 15 parking tickets. So I don't really see how that erupted into such a global uh, issue. And I don't know why you're sitting here with this you should, this should happen at my house right what now. What is your perception of why it's such a what, why Anna's story became so big? Because people are so desperate in their own lives, generally speaking, that they're bored, I guess. And they're looking for like, people live off the lives of other people, whether it's normally it's the bad things that drive human interest. And like, looky loo, you see a car crash and everybody stops to observe. Nobody you don't open up a newspaper and read that something good happened or someone did a good deed or what drives the intrigue of people or when things happen, when people break the rules or go against the norm. Yeah. So I give everyone the benefit of the doubt to me, mm -hmm. and you seem like a nice enough person <laughs> so far. And I certainly think the amount of resources, you, like you're sitting here and you can't even go take a walk down the street. That's inhumane treatment for someone who didn't even barely in my mind, do anything that was so transgressive, so. Yeah. And I mean, I'm self-taught at what I do, and I find the art world to be a terribly conservative, restrictive place that always tries to keep people down and subjugate people, and I've always, like I've created my own role in the art world and what I do, my teaching, writing, making art, curating, dealing, all the different things that I've done and do, and it's always been more difficult because I come from outside the system and people are always trying to pigeonhole me, to compartmentalize me, to put me down, to say I can't do this, I can't do that. The hate mail I get from people and, you know, so. so wouldn't you feel like it's better to be an outsider, especially like in the art world, because you kind of like, you don't become the part of the machine? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I wouldn't, like every year I have this exhibition sale auction at Sotheby's, it was almost, it was done as a joke. It's called the hoarder. So generally, if you refer to a collector as a hoarder, you're putting them down. It's materialistic, it's shallow, and you're just acquiring things for the sake of being materialistic. Every collector is like that, me included. But at the same time, I offer a chunk of my collection every year with no reserve. So like Jerry Saltz, the critic who sends his regards, and he's a fan of yours. I just met him at Sotheby's. And he's like, how could you do this? You're, you're going to lose so much money. And I said, I never even keep count. I have the art. I need to make a living. I did really well with NFTs for a year, and then the market crashed. And I prefer to just not be beholden to anyone and to do what I want. And I've collected so much art over the years. I can afford to sell a chunk of it if I, I make money on some, lose money on others. But at the same time, it, it democratizes the art world in a way that like 80% of the people that go to my auction that come to see an exhibition at Sotheby's has never been to an auction house in their life. I also have like a 278-year-old esteemed auction house selling like 10 pairs of my vintage Adidas track pants that I always wear. And I think that's kind of like 
you know, I like that. It's how do you like, differentiate the way that you reach out to people, the way that you promote per se, to get those people in there that others don't? Well, I mean, I can't sell drugs to a drug addict. I'm a terrible salesperson and I really don't care. I love art so much. It gives me joy and it's the only pleasure I have in my entire life besides being with my kids. And I lost one of my kids four years ago. And I used to always joke, even though I make art and I could be pretty, oh, pretty egotistical myself, but like artists suck the air right out of your mouth and they're always looking over the sh your shoulder for the next opportunity. But they've done clinical studies that living with art reduces your anxiety, your, your depression, bl blood pressure. So being with art, I don't really go out of my way to commercially promote anything, but I make art out of my auction. So everything I do is on some level interrelated, whether it's making a, a video, whether it's having the auction, whether it's lecturing, writing. For me, it's just, that's what I do. And it's all an art form on some level. So I don't go and like walk around with the sandwich board, like come buy my shit at Sotheby's, but I post stuff and I reach out to people and they know that most of the stuff has no reserve, which is basically unheard of to sell stuff where someone could buy something for $200 that I ostensibly paid like 50,000 for. Anyway, I don't really care about the money stuff as long as I could make it and continue that it fuels my art making and my teaching and my writing. So do you see yourself as an artist first and everything else second? Yes. I mean, I guess writing, teaching and art making are the three things that I care most about. Yeah. How do you see that you said outside the system? How do you define and where does the system live and where, where's the outside? Well, I mean, you have the galleries, the museums, the collectors. I mean, I came from, like I said, I'm self-taught. I study philosophy. I went to law school, but I never went. I just went there to hide from getting a shitty job. And I thought that the art world was wild, that people are like hanging from the chandelier, drinking absinthe and going to orgies the whole time. And then when I got into the art world, I was shocked because it's the mo I've been in fashion world and stock exchange, various other industries, and nothing prepared me for how backward looking and conservative the art world is. It's a giant zero sum game where everyone is looking for this. I mean, the art world is $65 billion a year, which it's relatively a lot of money, but in relationship to like other industries like technology or entertainment, it's a very small world. So it operates on like a zero sum where one person gets an opportunity at the expense of somebody else. If a museum gives an exhibition to, to some like Jim Carrey or some movie star or fashion designer, it's at the expense of, of an artist that won't be able to have that opportunity. So it's a struggle. And I think doing things your own way without regard to the system or fighting the system, I couldn't do it any other way. I love it. And it gives me, it empowers me to, to fight this fight. It makes things harder for me, but I, I always find a way. And I love what I do so much. So what do you see as a difference between artists, critics, curators, and dealers? And what makes one person one and not the other? Intent. It's yeah. a matter of intent. If you consider what you're doing to be art in any regard, whether it's making a movie, writing a poem, giving a lecture. It's just a matter of what, what you consider to be the content of what you're doing. Yeah. And what about the skill set? I'm, I'm self-taught. Did you, I mean, you never went to art school, did you? Or no. Did? I took like fashion illustration, like mm -hmm. courses, but I wouldn't, I never went to like an art school. So like, what was your question again? 
<laughs> what is the difference in a skill set? Right. So, I mean, I'm not sure what my what if I have any skills. <laughs> I mean, I can't draw a stick figure. I can draw a stick figure. I actually did one for my uh, advertisement for one of the Sotheby's promotions. Um, I don't have the attention span to like. I make films, mm -hmm. short narrative films that are largely have been animated over the past seven or eight years. I don't, people say, what, what software do you use? So I say it's called Assistant. I just have someone help me with it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I don't want to, I mean, I guess I could learn, but I just don't, I rather think. And because I study philosophy in a way, I think like, for me, philosophy underpins all of the art that I care about, conceptual art. Vito Acconci is an artist whose work that I love, who was a performance artist from the late 60s and 70s. He started in poetry. He's most famous for building a fake floor in a gallery in 1972 and masturbating under the floor. So when he would hear people yeah. walking on the floor and then he had a microphone and a speaker and he was masturbating for hours on end and he would say, well, anyway, it, I just thought like if that's art, then maybe this is a field that I could, I could <laughs> this could be something I'd like to pursue. <laughs> But I just think it's, so that's a matter of intent. Mm -hmm. If you're masturbating in public, you get arrested. If you're a conceptual artist and you're doing this in the name of, a, of creativity or self-expression, that's a matter of, I mean, that's art. So I just think for me, art is a state of mind and you don't have to be classically trained to draw. Or I mean, it's, if you want to paint, I make paintings, I just send computer files to China and have it painted for $10 <laughs> because I can't paint. Damien Hirst said when he, he's a great sculptor, conceptual sculptor, but he can't paint. His painting sucked. And he had a painting show and he said anyone could learn to paint like Rembrandt. Maybe if you start when you're like eight years old and yeah. do it every single day of your life. But he hasn't and his work will never be Rembrandt. But he's, I don't detract from his early body of work, which was phenomenal. Yeah. But in the end, if you start believing your own, like, the mythology, the self-created mythology of being this artist, artist with a capital A, and anything you do or touch is a masterpiece, that's a dangerous situation. So I just love what I do, and I think that the skill set is passion, yeah. tenacity, perseverance, and never letting anyone tell you you can't. Because mm -hmm. people are always going, I mean, you're in a certain position, different from me, and people are going to be hateful and going to be spiteful. And they're going to say, you can't paint, you can't make art, you go, and you can do whatever you want. And no matter what you've done, you're, you're on so many people's radar. So for good and bad, but so what? So you've done what you've done. You're very young and you have your whole life ahead of you. And you'll work it out and you'll do, you're doing just fine and better than most people. So it's a matter of just pursuing what you want to do, how you want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. You've talked to me about life as art. You, yeah. You've used those concepts. <laughs> I think that's it's a pretty pretentious concept, like to just to see your, <laughs> your life is? as like performance art, to see your life as a performance Yeah, art. but you know, I... The life of Anna Delphi. <laughs> Why not? Else it just feels like, I guess, it comes from the way people are like just observing my situations. Like I can't get anybody pretty much to come over just because they want to see what my personal prison looks like. Not because like, you know. <laughs> I wasn't really interested in, I was more interested in meeting you and seeing, yeah. 
I mean, we, you know, some artists that I know and, you know, an art dealer that I know, but yeah, it's intriguing on some level. <laughs> what did people say when you, when you told well, them? Well, I didn't really tell, did. I told, I mean, I said to my kids, should I do this or should I not do this? They're like, do it, do it. It's oh, so yeah. cool. <laughs> then I, so that's an, I value, I, look, I get along best. Delvies for the children. <laughs> I get along with children and dogs. <laughs> And I think kids are the best judge of character, of art. Everyone, I did this exhibition in 1991. I studied Islam when I was in university. And among, I studied philosophy and political science. I took this class because I was intrigued by the division in the world between different cultures. Everyone in the class was a Muslim, except for me, because they all thought they would get an easy A. So they were all engineering students. Where was it? In Washington, D.C. Wasn't terribly academic at the time. And uh, the teacher was an ancient Arabic scholar, and it was I read the Quran from front to back, and it was unbelievably fascinating. And he said something which I will never forget. There were these agrarian peasants in the mountains of Af Afghanistan, and they never took a, went to school a day in their life, nor learned to read, and they memorized the Quran all three hundred pages verbatim. And this idea came into my head. It was like he mentioned the word unlearning. Yeah. And you constantly have all of these things imposed on you in the art world. There's, there's like it's omerta in the mafia. There's a certain way to do business. There's a certain, you could say certain things. You could do things a certain way. There's an accepted mode of behavior about what you can do and what you can't do. These, these farmers who learned a text which is expansive because their head wasn't filled with all the dogma and the shit that everyone else is forced to learn and to abide by. And I don't, I really think that's a wonderful notion that, and that's why I respect the opinions of children because <clears throat> they don't know what they're not allowed to say. And I say the art world knows one word. It's the word no. No, you can't do this. No, you can't. I do things that have had, I've had death threats. I've had people trying to beat me up in restaurants, people throwing punches at me, people trying to sue me. This one person sent hate mail to my children which almost brought me to the edge of not wanting to do my journalism anymore. I've had some terrible situations based on the fact that I just don't give a fuck and I have fun poking people and provoking people. I enjoy it. Guys, the I made a, a sculpture about a security anklet in the 90s. Oh really? They used to look the same way, right? Yeah. So I made a cutout of a figure and then I made like a fake one that she was wearing on her ankle. Oh, you need to show that to me. Yeah, I have to find the picture. Everybody's so mad that my ankle is uncomfortable this. to sleep in. I mean, I don't mind. It's, it's pretty light. Yeah. And I don't know. Does it move around? Yeah. It feels like it's gotten bigger a bit. I don't know. <laughs> it's oh growing. God. It's pretty fucking obnoxious for them to treat you this way, I have to say. Yeah, it's just really crazy because nobody else is like getting such treatment. I, I just mean, think it's if you don't get sun and air, it's unhealthy. I so know. you could make some kind of argument that it's in you're, you're suffering an inhumane treatment. Well, they're telling me I can move within the building. So if you <laughs> had um, like what, go up and down the stairs in the. <laughs> I used to have a rooftop, but now they closed it because this building is too cheap to install the guardrails. 
So um, I am trying to get moved from here to like a building with more amenities because if I had like a gym and a pool, so they're not like prohibiting me from that. And it seems like it's, it's weird power dynamics. I guess like what I learned having been for the system, like there is no one big government. There was just like Little pockets of... Yeah, different agencies, they barely interact with each other and everybody's like kind of like pushing their own, like sometimes they're forced to like coordinate, but they don't like to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's DHS and ICE and there's like the judges, the immigration judges, and they just have to like they're above the DHS and ICE and they just have to follow their orders. So it's not necessarily like, I mean, ICE, if it was up to them, they would have like, I would be gone. I would be in Europe now. But the judge decided that I will be on home confinement and I'm not allowed to use social media for whatever reason. You can't even go on Instagram or anything. Yeah, they said. I should get that. That would be beneficial. To <laughs> Save you time. <laughs> Back to my kids telling me I share to, I overshare. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I had to turn over my passwords to them. But what, you can't go on Instagram on your own telephone? I'm not supposed to. I'm not, uh, well, the, the way the wording is, the way the order is worded is that I'm not allowed to access my Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, either myself or through third parties, because they knew I was posting, like my manager or my PR was posting while I was in jail, obviously. And that's posting what? Oh. I was just like posting about like about my art mainly because obviously I could not like take pictures of myself or anything like that while I was in jail. Um, and How long were you in jail for? Uh, well, I was in jail. I was in jail slash prison for three years and four months for my criminal case, and I got out last year. Um, so you were out without any? Yeah, no. Um, ankle bracelet. So I was still like I knew that I overstayed my visa, but that happened right after Biden took office, and he tried to put moratorium on all deportations. So then ICE came to the prison from which I was getting released last year. And they were like, well, you're not a priority because you are nonviolent. Um, so we're just going to like parole you um, and come to see us at 26 Federal Plaza six weeks later, which I did. And so for a period of time, you you were completely free? Um, I was just on my criminal parole. So I see. Um, but you allowed out. Curfew and stuff like that. I had like yeah. a 9 p.m. curfew. I had to be within my apartment from 9 p.m. till 7 a.m. Yeah, but... Everything else was pretty, it was not that restrictive. I have like no fiduciary duty, I think. Um, that's pretty much it. And then when did they, they hit you again with this subsequent? Well, and then I went to report to 26 Federal Plaza, like they told me, and they were like, well, you're just coming with us. And then like they arrested me just because they again. became clearer on the rules. It's not because of anything I've done myself, it's just because they became clearer on the rules. Um, because you know, like how Biden, he can't just really create the rules that he wants to. Um, Trump so seems to think he could. <laughs> and it's still funny to think because if Trump um, got reelected, they would have deported me right away, I believe. So you're happy to be here under these circumstances rather than... I mean, this is what I wanted, so in a way, so it's my choice. Um, it's not ideal, but... You could elect just to go to the airport tomorrow and go, go to Germany. Yeah. Where's your family in Germany? Yeah, in Germany. Are they supportive? Of... Yeah. To, to an extent, yeah. I mean, they're not... They're, they're not thrilled. They're not, like, clapping their hands. Right? But <laughs> we talk, like, weekly. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason you can't have a, a good art. I think when my friend Inigo gets out of jail, being he studied making art at Goldsmiths, one of the top universities in the yeah. UK. And I think that... I wouldn't be surprised if he started practicing art full-time. Yeah. But, I think it's a, it's a great outlet. And I also... 
I like restrictions in a way because I feel like it's just really crazy to imagine that you can do whatever you want. You it, like restrictions. Then you must be thrilled with your situation now because you're pretty fucking restricted. <laughs> you must be in heaven. But, you can get a fake one when you get it off and then you can just... But then it means nothing. It's devoid of any meaning. I guess now it's just like, um, it's really... Like, because if I were to step out of my uh, apartment, like, I'll get arrested. Rear, rear, rear. <laughs> um, I feel like when you don't have any choices, like, when the choices are being eliminated for you, it's kind of easier to just, like, see. Sure. I mean, I guess, like, I was thinking, like, because I was super, super close with this friend of mine, Inigo Philbrick, who's went and got a seven-year prison sentence in federal prison for what he did. And he was just... I mean, people were throwing money at him because they were greedy. They, this kid was in his 20s and he was borrowing millions and millions of dollars and nobody checked his collateral. So he would use the same collateral for loan after loan and then he would sell the same artwork. I can't sell an artwork once and he would sell the same piece five times, including <laughs> one that was owned by the Prince of Saudi Arabia, which I guess isn't the brightest move to cheat somebody. <laughs> Someone who's so murderous is the prince. But... um I wonder if on a certain level, like with Bernie Madoff and these people, when you're living, when the pressure of knowing that sooner or later, this is going to, you're going to get caught, it's a lot of pressure and anxiety. So I'm sure on a certain level, he was happy at some point when he didn't have to carry on lying and juggling. And yeah. these, But I don't think anything you ever did measured up to that. I can understand. I just, yeah, I don't like living under rules and confinement and... I mean, I just think if I have too much free time, I do get, I mean, I think it's more paralyzing to have too much free time than if I'm super busy and overcommitted, I could do anything. Yeah. But if I have like a window of six hours where I don't have a deadline, I'll just, I'll, I'll just sit there and go drifting on the internet and do nothing. Yeah. So do a little Vito Acconci under the floor. He was selling like the same thing repeatedly and hoping to that use was that one capital of the things. to get Well, he, he borrowed money. Things. He would get like a loan for 15 million yeah. and use five paintings for collateral. The paintings weren't his. And, but he was using that loan to hopefully make 15 into more. Sure, I mean, he, yes. The, the idea yeah. was like he was juggling and if uh -huh. a couple of deals, one painting ended up at Christie's, it was by an artist called Rudolf Stengel and it was a portrait of Picasso. He bought it with the money from a German finance company. Then he sold... 100% of it to somebody else, yeah. unbeknownst to the company that thought they owned it. Then he sold half of it to someone else. So he sold like 325% of the Did same Did he have painting. a plan to make more money I mean, though? To I don't eventually think, fill I don't it think, in? I mean, we drank a lot together. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> or was he just running the clock out? No, he, I mean, fun. look, when you're a gambler and you, you play one more yeah. hand of cards, you hope that if, if that piece was put up at Christie's, if that went for 12 million, which was perfectly conceivable, he would have been able to he maintain. Back. Yeah, yeah, he would have no paid one would back not. this one, paid back that one, strung another one along until the next deal went through. So he wasn't intending to like, you know, he was really smart. And like people freak out when I say that, you know, we had a lot of great deals. We, we had a lot of good business together. And I just think it, you get caught up in this thing and you're like, one more deal and I'll be able to get myself out of this one. And oh, if I just juggle this, I'll be able to get by. So what do you see um, the difference between like American market and... Uh... British or European? In terms of the art world? Yeah. The art world... Or the media or just in general, like kind of... I mean, 
That's a good question. I just think so much, so much of the world is homogenized. Like you could spin around and you could be in Ohio or you could be in like in a European capital or Brussels or something. And there's not really a tremendous amount that differentiates. The culture is so, I mean, because of social media, because we're all watching the same programs, reading the same things, looking at the same celebrities, I don't think there's there's that much distinguishing characteristics in any jurisdiction, in any culture. I mean, I've done shows in, in China. I lectured in Korea. I I don't really, I mean, art is like, it's become like Starbucks. I mean, there's a lot of global brands that translate from one country to the other, and everybody seems to be chasing the same stuff. And unless there's like art that has text or language in it, you can't, I mean, there's been a lot of art from Africa and African-Americans recently in the last five, 10 years that's come to the fore in contemporary art. And, but like my closest friend when I was living in the UK was the Iraqi architect, Zaha Hadid. And if you dare, the only thing worse than calling her a female architect was calling her an Arab female architect. And I just think her architect, like great things transcend boundaries. Yeah. And what I love about social media, because I was in the art world in the late 80s and the early 90s, and the only way you could communicate an image was through the mail by sending a photographic reproduction from one person to the other before the advent of social media. And social media blurred these geographical boundaries where people could be on in, in, in anywhere in the globe and it didn't matter because you were able to express yourself and communicate. Yeah. And then with NFTs for the short period of time where they flourish, right now there's a bit of a little few issues going on, but that was a great way for people. I mean, I've written, I'm writing a book. I've written dozens of articles. I've given almost between more than 50 lectures at universities across the world, helping people. So social media would help you express yourself, but you still had to rely on this antiquated system, the art world to sell your stuff. And now people are empowered. I really love helping to inspire people to create, like if I go to a university and teach and critique students, I would never tell them to try to get a gallery to represent them. It makes no sense today. The idea is to do things yourself and to use social media and use things like NFTs to go directly to market and and away from these mega companies, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Pace Gallery or David Zwerner Gallery or Hauser and Wirth. These galleries are deadening. They only affirm what's been affirmed in the market and all they care about is what sells and what can continue to sell. Yeah. And I think art is so much more than that. And it's great when people could, even if you make 15,000 or 20,000 in a year from your art that enables people to be able to carry on and continue doing what they love. And that's really what it's about. And I think that when everything after this whole corruption scandals pass in the crypto world, I think NFTs are really one of the coolest things I've seen in my entire career. What do you think about uh, of Trump, the NFT artist? <laughs> I think it's pretty fucking funny. I made What's the Trump NFT artist. I don't. I mean, he just made a bunch of NFTs for ninety nine. Oh, Trump at oh oh. Yeah. Sorry. Melania <laughs> yes, made NFT. Thing. I made art about Melania's NFT because I always make critical art that responds to things happening around me in the art world. Yeah. I make these short films. 
Oh, yeah, just for the context of Trump, a couple of days ago, he dropped the, the yeah, D's we... for $99. Um, and it's like f- him as Superman or something? Yeah, or... and him. That was one of them. The... He's always skinnier than he is in real life <laughs> and better looking. And, and the taller, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would love to buy one and then re like hack it. <laughs> well, I got mocked, but it's sold out, apparently. You know. He's a popular guy. I still, you know... <laughs> People should not dismiss him because, unfortunately, he speaks to, he got 74 million votes. That's a fucking lot of people. So you can't dismiss someone like that. He's a populist in the worst kind of way. And sadly, he's communi- he speaks to a lot of people and identify with him and agree with his lunacy. Yeah. What do you think of the whole Sam Bankman fried You know, I see, it's funny because because I got to live so closely with someone if you look at WeWork, if you look at Sam Bankman Freed and like Inigo, it's all, these people are enabled by a, a culture of greed. So, did you see the documentary on WeWork? I did not. You but should I'm, see it. It's really cool. I know the story. So, like the story is, he was trying to raise money from um, Soft SoftBank. SoftBank. Yeah. SoftBank. So. The guy who inherited SoftBank from his dad, or the guy's worth billions of dollars, and he didn't have time to really meet with, what's the guy's name? Adam? Adam Newman. Newman. Hmm? Newman. Right. So something's son. What, you can fill in all the missing. Anyway, the Japanese investor. Masa, yeah. Mark Andreessen. Forget Mark Andreessen, <laughs> although he's like the biggest NFT investor. You have a look at, he has a head like a cone head. So people threw money at WeWork because he was tall, good looking, charming. But like these people invested billions of dollars in WeWork. Sam Bankman Fried, the people that invested in his company were among the most prominent, successful people in the world. This is this one guy is super good looking and charming. The other guy is schleppy, goofy looking, playing video games in the meeting. Anyway, what happens is this. So you have this guy, he's in his 20s, he starts a company, and I'm sure he didn't start his journey with the intent to steal money. I am most certain of that. Yet, when he starts to do things, and he's playing video, he's doing all these things that ostensibly should be red flags that this guy is, there's some, it's, it's not terribly professional what he's doing. So he's running this company, and people start to, lavishly throw money at him and then he carries on like with none of the checks and balances that the most basic small company would have in effect none of these terribly sophisticated investors bother to check the fundamentals of his company so they're investing billions of dollars without so much as checking in the same way that Inigo people he was good-looking he was charming, he was funny, he was fun, and he was terribly bright. And these people, I blame as much the people that loaned him the money without checking. This is a kid who's in his 20s claiming to be worth like 50, 60 million dollars, and nobody checked. Nobody did the due diligence because the greed of these other people, of these third parties that wanted to profit off of this person, whether it's Sam, WeWork, or Inigo. Nobody, all of these adults, never checked these kids 
that were in these positions of prominence because they all greedily wanted to cash in on the perception of value and and genius and and so i think in a way like i see like indigo's downfall was this kind of arrogance that he had this i always kind of hate have low self-esteem and hate myself and think i'm a failure but like these people like i saw in him he had this self-belief which i thought was like enviable and I wrote this in this article in New York magazine I wrote called Minnie Madoff. He would get up every morning and take a shower and scream his name, Inigo, 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 to psych himself up for the day's trading. And he had this, like, he exuded confidence, mm -hmm. self-belief, success. And it, he was arrogant as a result. And I think that when people are just throwing you this money and you end up believing what they believe without, and without any reality check. So I think Sam Bankman-Fried, when everyone's chucking money at him and he's sitting there in his beanbag in the Bahamas in his $40 million apartment with this bullshit about like, you know, altruism and selfless, whatever you call it, where everyone, you make as much money as you possibly can. And then, but he, it was all a lie. Effective altruism. Yes. But in the end, I just think that he was too young. People were throwing resources at him with abandon. Nobody checked. It would have been so easy to look at the, the books of his company, but nobody did. So if you're a kid and people throwing money continually, it's hard to think. Like if the market didn't crash, he would have carried on being as successful as he ever was. If Alameda, his investment company, didn't lose all of this money, he wouldn't have in turn borrowed money with impunity from his FTX exchange. So his investment arm of his company took a huge hit. And then he just, with impunity, took money from these other hapless investors. So I think it's more computers are not dishonest and greedy and immoral. People are. There's nothing inherently wrong with crypto, but greed is a primal human characteristic. And people will always take shortcuts in trying to, like, you know, take advantage. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, this kind of sense of entitlement or greed could be a very dangerous thing. Just, I, get, I just think it's this kind of like arrogance. Those people sleep like babies at night because they have this self-belief, which is beyond the, the reality of a given situation. Hmm. So how long do you think uh, SBF should get in prison? And there's like Theranos, she... She got 11. <clears throat> yeah, Inigo got seven. She got 11. Although she's like in her $130 million house now or something, isn't she? She's like a rich boyfriend. I know, <laughs> a very, very, very rich boyfriend. <laughs> I think that he should get, he should get it, nothing short of like 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. Because he robbed a lot of very innocent, hardworking people, yeah. a million people. And again, like I, I, I think that these idiots chucking money at him are complicit in enabling him. I think he was good at branding. He just recognized what people wanted. I don't think he set out to be a criminal. I just think it, he just was sloppy and stupid. And, and, and it was more arrogance, I think. Than, but in the end, he broke a lot of laws in an ex, with a, worth, uh, stole a lot of money. Yeah, yeah.
Back to what you were saying before, what are some galleries that you think are like doing a good job? Anybody? Well, galleries are, I mean, I wouldn't want to be a gallerist, that's for sure, because artists are always looking for other opportunities beyond, it's a tough job. I mean, sales is a tough job and selling art is difficult and people have a very short-term perspective and they buy stuff and they sell stuff. And I mean, I just think galleries are a little bit antiquated in general. And I just think as an artist today, I would be more interested in finding my own path, utilizing, like I created my own, I have a, this mechanism at Sotheby's I could, I use once a year to sell my crap, like having a blanket on St. Mark street and selling my shit out of my house. And without relying on a gallery, without relying on any other system. And even like- The I, auction house. Yeah, but they do every, they, it's my terms. I decide what I want to sell. I curate the, the sale. I just supply them the goods. They pick it up in Zurich, in UK, in New York, in New Jersey. They document, they do everything. All the logistics and all the things that I just don't have the mindset to do, they do it. So I think- you have to really, really, really focus on what you want to do and and then just find a way that suits you without being, you know, in this master-slave situation where you're subjugated by, you know, the gallery. Every, I mean, I have, I only got gallery representation for my own art when I became successful selling NFTs. Then I ended up curating an NFT show and being represented by this gallery in Berlin and Cologne and also in Athens. And... They try to like they 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 emasculate you, you know. They tell you you can't show this. This isn't good. I'm like, fuck are you telling me this isn't good. If you don't like it, you don't like it. You don't have to tell me it's not good art. It's maybe you'll be proven wrong in the long run. Maybe not. But if you ever have to compromise, I mean, the the trick in life, life is so short, and everyone is telling you what you can't do. I think you have to just find your path, define your terms capitulate as little as possible and just find you always like a rock around the stream and like i mean of all like malcolm x not to reference someone that i don't really have a social standing to he said by any means necessary and i know what i like to do i know what makes me feel good writing lecturing and making art and then the rest is up to me if i have to rely on some fucking art gallery or some system for validation whether it's economic i have to you have to find your own way. And there's more tools at your disposal today to do so. Whereas when I was like visiting graduate students at RISD 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would tell the students, find a gallery where you share the sensibility, go to the openings, meet the other artists, ingratiate yourself, meet the dealer. Now I go to, I was giving one of these talks at the Art Institute of Chicago, and I just found myself saying things that I never would have said 10 or 15 years ago. I would not even dream of going to a gallery now because the galleries only want to get involved with someone who, who sells. It's all about, it's so reductive and it's the only discourse in art is the money situation. And I love art and some of the artists that I care about the most died destitute with no money, yet I consider them to be among the world's most successful artists. Like Vito Conchi died destitute. Paul Tech is another artist who died of AIDS in the 90s was working in a supermarket after being in exhibitions in museums all over Europe in his lifetime. So galleries are great. They do a good job of what they do. It's a tough job. You have to get into art fairs and yeah, it's a constant life of like, you know, hurdles getting into an art fair. It's so political. The art world has its own brand of hypocrisy. It's so two-faced and they're all 
full of shit and you just have to like you know once you get your social media back that'll be a great tool for you to sell your paintings yeah. you'll do much better yourself than i mean than anyone could do for you probably so why do you choose to associate yourself with artnet Aren't they like a part of the... Well, I mean, I started writing for Artnet in the 90s. Then the editor I worked with, um, Walter Robinson, he got fired from one day to the next and they closed down Artnet. And then I wrote for the New York Observer, for New York Magazine, the art newspaper and art news. But like, I didn't like my editor, smart as she was at the time. She was like cutting my articles in half, which really annoyed me. And I was getting paid peanuts. And then she was like changing my language around, saying words I didn't even understand. And my other editor was putting in jokes that I thought weren't terribly funny and it's really annoying. So I went to Artnet the second time around because at that time I had a, I developed an audience through just posting my things on social media and they gave me the freedom not to be edited and not to be cut, which is also a little bit dangerous. But I think Artnet is, it has the biggest readership and it's the most, accessible they put up a paywall which really annoyed me but i told them i'll continue to write at a much higher salary but i'm going to post it for free two days after your paywall goes up and i just think for me what i really love about art is a means of communication and art can't exist in a vacuum it needs an audience to complete the equation and even though i like nice hotels and i like to buy art and uh I really believe in making things as accessible as possible to as many people as possible and helping. I love to just, I mean, I thesis advise dozens of students. I just, anyone who contacts me on DM, I respond to and I try to help. It takes the same amount of time to try to help someone as not to, as to just ignore it or say no. And I just think I'm not looking for anything in return. 60, 70% of what I do is for nothing in life. It's like, I'm not an, a charity or an altruist, but like by default, I sort of am. It's effective not, altruism. Huh? <laughs> effective ineffective, altruism. <laughs> ineffective altruism. I mean, I just think like I try to help people. It's, I get satisfaction, joy from that. Were you always like that or did it come with age? No, because, <laughs> I beg your pardon, you're trying to say I'm old. <laughs> Fuck you. How old are you? How old do you think I am? No. 30? That's good enough, yeah. Are you? Yeah. A baby. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you how old you think I am because then I'm just going to leave. <laughs> but no, I think like I was overweight yes. and I stuttered. The reason I never shut the fuck up now is because like I couldn't even talk for the first 15 years of my life or more. And then no one ever listens to me and my family. So I seize every moment when you clip on a microphone. But I don't think it, it came with self-awareness. Mm -hmm. I always was uncomfortable in my skin. I used to drink a lot. I used to do a lot of drugs, like not like, yeah, a lot regularly until the last four years I stopped. And I was always hiding from myself or just uncomfortable with who I was or who I thought I was. And I guess age has something to do with it or just the time to like feel more comfortable in my own skin with who I am. And what I've done and accomplished. And with that, I mean, I guess part of my satisfaction is derived from, I spend my whole life learning things and then the next part, teaching it and giving it away, sharing that information. And I think that 
yeah, I'm grateful that people want to listen, that people want to read and look, and I like to reciprocate. Well, so tell me about NFTs. How did you like arrive to well, I that? Always, I mean, I loved, I got a computer when I was, when, when before they were laptops, that's how old I am. Mm -hmm. Just because, I mean, I cannot get my phone to work, but I love technology. Yeah. I love the cultural impact of technology. We live in such a digital world. And it's a shame that like videos, I've always made digital art and I've always made videos, short films, but they were, you couldn't sell them, they're unsellable. You sell them on like a USB memory stick and they're always like, people always love paintings. I can't paint, I wish I could paint, but like. Like me. <laughs> yeah, I like your paintings. I want that round one. We have to work out a deal. I'll take it with me under my arm. What do you like about it? It's kind of kitsch, but I, I like, I mean, your, your signature is really funny because normally I prefer signature on the back of a work of contemporary art, but yeah. like I'm very close with Tracy and she always writes her titles and her signature on the front of her paintings, which is quite unusual for paintings of that stature and that with the visibility of her career. And I say to her, like, you should write that. You don't need to write that on the face of the painting, but you can't tell anyone with such great power what to do. <laughs> but um, I like your writing. So I like the, I love text as a writer. I love text in art. So for me, there's a visual, there's an aesthetic component of your writing that I really like. And then I haven't loved, I mean, I like this one more than some of the other ones I've seen. I just like this figure, the way she's sort of floating and with this sky, with her extended arms, and uh, maybe I would like it just with the signature without the text about fame and the... <laughs> sort of block it out. But yeah, you know, I mean, the Supreme Court were ruling on pornography in the 50s, and the judge said, I can't define what constitutes pornography, but I know it when I see it. And like when I do a studio visit, I hate to like have artists are so needy, generally speaking, and they put you on the spot and they're like, what do you like? What do you not like? What should I do? What, what should I do to make it better? And I'm like, I hate the fact that someone can come into someone's studio and say you should use more blue or something mm -hmm. because in no way am I capable of telling someone what they should do and how they should do it. But yeah, so I could just say I like it. Mm -hmm. And I like the composition and I like, yeah, I think it's cool. Yeah, I think circles are cool. Circles are also way more difficult in the art market than squares. Squares will always sell better than circles. Really? And like, there's a whole hierarchy of colors that sell better than others. Mm -hmm. Red is always number one. Mm -hmm. Like brown and green are the worst. Hmm. Yeah, well, but who wants easy? <laughs> no, easy is no fun. Easy is no fun. <laughs> well, you certainly not made it. You don't have it easy now. <laughs> And that's, that's how I wanted it. <laughs> All right, so let's go back to NFTs. Don't you oh, think... Oh, yeah, so I made digital art the whole time. And when I found out about NFTs two years ago, I just jumped because it made perfect sense because mm -hmm. it's like, it's a mechanism to sell digital art. It's a digital certificate of authenticity. It's a shame that it gets bundled with crypto because crypto is a little bit flawed in terms of all of the variables that drive that market. Don't I think it's what... Um, don't you think like in, it just needs a rebrand? I think like even the word NFT is so unfortunate. It's, um, I feel like the technology behind it will survive. I coined this not... word NFTism. 
And for me, and then I change it to post-NFTism when everything started <laughs> to fall apart. But I think for me, NFTism is like this collaborative spirit of people trying to help each other. Yeah. Like when I first got started, some guy that I barely knew chucked me an Ethereum that was worth $1,600 and he just gave it to me because he wanted me to mint my NFTs outside of Nifty Gateway, which was not even crypto denominated at the time. And Nifty Gateway controls the private keys to the NFTs, so you don't even really own your own work when you mint with this platform. So I think the name doesn't bother me so much, considering it's inked into my arm. <laughs> but I think they definitely need to be rebranded because it got to the point where like it became it was just like the like the personification of pure lust and short-termism greed and money grabbing and grift and they became derivatives like people were like so pfp a profile picture nft like the crypto punks when i first saw the punks i was like what the fuck is this it looks horrible it is horrible there's ten thousand of them and it, but i came to appreciate the fact that that was a real shift it was a hybrid between fine art collectible it was a new genre of something it was created algorithmically. It lived on, most NFTs don't even exist on the blockchain. Only the smart contract is on the blockchain. The art is just in a file that gets stored on the cloud. And the URL of where the art is stored is in the smart contract. So an NFT is really just a certificate of nothing. And it gives you the right to buy and sell something, which is cool. I appreciate that. But I think NFTs are great. And like at one point, though, there were 1,400 PFP crypto punk type NFTs, series of 10,000 each. There was 1,400 released in one week on OpenSea. It just became a disgusting free-for-all. At the same time, like when the when internet stocks became the rage in the year 2000, every person was speculating and making millions of dollars until it all came crashing to zero, but we still use the internet. So I think that there's this exuberance, which is, which is not sustainable, which we've just experienced. And I think that this whole crash and SBF is kind of like the bookend of the collapse because he's just sort of destroyed all the credibility of crypto in one swoop. But this is just exactly what we needed right now. We needed to go to zero and to retrench. And I think that NFTs reflect a mechanism to buy and sell the art of our time, which is digital art. We live in a digital age. I feel like NFT is the social layer, then like the whole black blockchain is like the technology behind it, and crypto is just the financial layer of it. And But they're all inter but that's a great point. I mean the social manifestation of the technology like in the in the near future you'll like own your social media you'll own your like why should like Zuckerfucker, who like the censorship on social media and the way that i mean even like elon musk was saying like freedom of speech five minutes later he's he's um throwing off all these journalists and censoring everybody and no one should have control of your content other than you it's absurd. Like every time we post something, we're giving away the rights. We're all pulling down our pants and walking around naked willfully. We're giving it all away because we have no choice. But I think in the future, you'll own the rights to your content. Like which, the Web3. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I love about the whole web, the notion of Web3 
is that you have control. And as an artist, as a maker, why should you rely on a gallery or somebody else to sell your own stuff? And the mechanism, like when you post your stuff on, like there's Tezos, which is really inexpensive and very easy to post NFTs on object.com is a platform, which I really like. I mean, when the market collapsed, I was selling the same art I was selling for $20,000 each for $50. Uh, when the market collapses, you don't stop making art, you just stop selling it. Mm -hmm. Or for the same prices you were getting. An artist is an artist in good times and bad times. And I just don't care about the money. I just care about having a platform to express myself. So whether I'm selling my stuff at Sotheby's, including my own art, if I lose a lot of money on some, make some other money on others, that liquidity event enables me to continue doing what I most love, which doesn't necessarily pay my bills. So I found a way to be able to continue doing what I care about the most. And you will too. You're talented and you're, I mean, even the things you did wrong somehow, like, it's cool. Like it brought, you made, like, that's why I think we should get a lecture together at Harvard Business School, because it's like, it's really brilliant when you think about it. You didn't do anything terribly bad. You had, like, I'm sure, I don't know how you, what your day-to-day -day life was for the few years that you were incarcerated. I mean, I think, yeah, in the long run, you could make it something that's very lucrative for yourself and take advantage of it. Why don't you explain what you were actually planning in the art world? Yeah, well, um, well, the whole Anna Deli Foundation was kind of like conceived when I was way younger. And uh, I just wanted like to have a foundation and everything uh, else came on top of it as a way to monetize it. I was level like the end goal, like the whole private club and like the restaurant. And it was like never the end goal. I just wanted to have like a space and I would get a, a different artist every three to six months. And I would just like let them transform the whole building and like somebody would need to pay for that. So <laughs> there was this cool club MK. Oh yeah. Which Eric Good started. He did the Tiger King. Oh yeah, every good isn't that the. Um... He was an artist before he had the club or during, but he had this club, and every month the whole entire decor interior changed, and they had these giant glass walls, and there were these like dioramas inside the wall, yeah. and you would go, and Andy Warhol would be like acting in this glass box. It was so cool, but it was like this fantasy of like constantly changing these environments from one day to the next was really amazing right yeah that's exactly like what i had in mind and i just had like one person kind of transform the whole experience and i would be like in charge of um like the glassware and cutlery and kind of from everything because like how many people actually get to do everything but i wanted to have like this kind of streamlined vision but then it would not stay there forever and because, you know, like when you go to Soho House or like any other space, like two years later, if they still exist, most like every time it just looks the same. So I just wanted to make it different. I mean, the only thing that I would beg to differ in terms of your, I think the intention is good, but I'm just like, I lived in the UK for 15 years and I would like the whole notion of private clubs for me is so uninteresting because it's exclusionary. And I find the art world to be so exclusionary that it's depressing. And I just think like great art should be seen by as many people as possible. Yeah. And like what you described would be super amazing. Yet if it was more open where anyone can go and experience art without having to be of a certain social status or something. Yeah. That's how I would 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not like working that now. That just was the idea for which I got to jail to go to jail. Um, I think the way I was planning it, like there would be. <laughs> you weren't planning that part. <laughs> but what did you do? You borrowed money from a bankers, or you you pretty much, know. yeah. But like these other knuckleheads from the one episode I saw, where they're giving you their credit cards to go on a holiday to Morocco. That's that's not your. You should, they should go to jail, not you. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen the the thing, so I'm sure like it's just dramatized. But it's yeah. just it wasn't. You didn't see it. No, it's a cringe. Well, you're know. much more charming. Yeah, it was cringe, but you're not. You're very charming. <laughs> um, so I guess like in my vision, there would be public parts definitely. Yeah. So you don't want to like just keep. In the best of all worlds, what would you want to be doing once you're free as the birds in your painting? Um, gosh, I don't know. This is like what's so terrifying to just like be able to do whatever you want because how do you make a choice? You need to live in a communist regime. <laughs> you like to have para- you like to have parameters. The trick is that I you have to learn to create your own parameters and then to just define yourself and and flourish without you don't want to live with these rules and regulations of other people defining what you're capable of how you should do it or what you should do. I feel like I'm just so used to like figuring out a way around constraints. Like who would I be without any constraints? Like who would I be if there was like- You tried that already. No two like (laughs) (laughs) government agencies keeping like a 24 seven. Right, but what about before? Yeah, but you, you can do anything. But it's just like, it almost feels like If nobody cares, are you really relevant? If what? <laughs> if nobody cares, like, are you really relevant? No, but what is really you like have that? to make people care. That's what, that's what the freedom of choice. Being an artist is, well, you're expressing yourself in a way that you, you, make, you create your relevance. Yeah. I mean, the art should have some kind of content, which is, whether it's critical or analytical or... Even if it's just simply beautiful, that's something you're making, mm-hmm. it needs to, you know, it has to be contextualized. So you have to learn more about the history of art. Like I never took an art class in my entire life. The first class I was in, I conned my way into a teaching job at the new school and the dean hired me on probation only because I had been to law school, but I had never taken an art class. But then I just bought the art history book. I like the rules too, like I guess when I think about it. So I would never just pick up Jansen's book of art history and read it for fun because mm-hmm. it's dreadfully boring. But then if I was teaching a class, I would have to learn it. Okay. And that's the way I learned it. So I would just get a big beer to get my courage up. Mm-hmm. I would read three chapters and then I would teach them. And then I forced myself to learn. Mm-hmm. But like I create the deadlines and the parameters and then I work within those. But yeah, just keep focusing on what you care about. and. So how did you slip into, into studying law? I just didn't want to get some shitty job with a, with a political science degree and a philosophy degree. I didn't want to work in advertising age. I didn't, I mean, in a way I was a bit of a, I was kind of like, I wouldn't say I was arrogant or entitled because I hate those things, but I wasn't willing to settle. Mm-hmm. And I defined my whole life in, in the negative what I did, I didn't want to have a routine. I didn't want to do the same thing from one day to the next. I didn't want to work for anybody. And I wanted to be creative in some way and entrepreneurial. So I had to invent a role that didn't really exist. 
I just knew what I wasn't willing to, to, to do. And that was most things. <laughs> so literally, it took me decades to really narrow down. But the point is that I know that life, like I said, life is so short and you're always going to have people, especially you have a great profile. For whatever reason, you have this incredible power, really, in a sense, to, self, to <laughs> self-invent yourself. You do. You just need to be around good people that are not wanting to use you for their own benefit, which is most people. And to find a few people you could trust and bounce things off of and give you some guidance and then just focus on what makes you feel good. So do you feel like um, your background in law is helpful at all or is it useless completely? It's useless, but it taught me the diligence of just like, I mean, I could be very, I can't do bookkeeping, I can't do my taxes, but like I could sit down to prepare for a lecture for 12 hours a day for however many days it takes or to write an article takes an incredible amount of discipline and in a way law was just like military school for my head. So for someone who was flitting around and couldn't really focus, that really taught me to study and to be able to have the simple discipline like that. Hmm. But otherwise, it's I have I don't recall any of it. I'm actually thinking about like maybe doing uh, like a quick law apprenticeship or something because I found it very interesting how fluid law actually is and how many ways there are to like read one thing. And I'm just I'm dealing with it on. I'm dealing with it pretty much on a daily basis. Like even with all my denials with like immigration court and I had like, I don't know, maybe 50 lawyers from like best law firms told Such me. Such a like, waste of money. Um, told me it's like, oh, well, you're never staying in New York. They're never letting you out. And uh, they just, and you just like find one who is like willing to kind of work around it and make it happen. And uh like law is not as rigid as people think it is. And this is why like, laws and rules are being changed all the time. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm ha- I worked full time when I went to school and I told everyone I was in night school and there was no night school, but I took the exams and I, I think it was, it's a good structure to learn. Okay. And especially for you, since it has more <laughs> practical applications <laughs> than for most. But I mean, I've been in a few lawsuits from my artwork and some other situation and it's, it could be soul sucking and it's it's a to be stuck in this Kafka-esque system, I can imagine, is quite extraordinary. Yeah. And but you should like you should consider writing stuff about it and doing, you know, films and stuff from your perspective of what you've been through in relationship to other people telling your story. You have your own story. Yeah. Well, this is like one way of me telling my story, kind of like by having interesting conversations with other people. You're you're a sympathetic person. (laughs) And like whenever I lecture, no matter where it is to who it is, I always say to everyone, you can contact me for the rest of my life since you'll all probably live longer than me. But if I can help anyone in any way, it's it's my great satisfaction to do so. And in a world like the art world, which is so unforgiving and so rigid, it's nice for people to be able to know that they can just contact someone out of the blue that's been through a couple of things and done things and get some feedback that could be very helpful to other people. And when people have gone in, I've, I've onboarded like many, many hundreds of people into NFTs and stuff that haven't made millions and millions, but have made enough to change their lives or whatever. And that's, that's, that's really satisfying. So you have a lot of opportunities at your disposal. You just need to, don't get dissuaded from 
yeah, accomplishing whatever you want, you can. So what do you think I should do? <laughs> I think you should write and make art and continue to find ways to tell your story and to help other people that are frustrated and having a difficult time and have gone through adversity and come out the other side and been able to make positive contributions. Yeah. Find a way to, I mean, yeah, to take advantage of the fact that you've become this focus of many people's attention and you've achieved this notoriety for better or worse. And you could definitely shape it into your own, you could do anything you want with it. What do you think it says about like the society and people as a whole um, that they've created this out of my story? What's that? What do you think it says about like people in a society? Well, it's kind of sad because like, I mean, I made this joke before that we could together teach like a great case study in Harvard Business School, but it's kind of sad that like, I mean, so my, my dearest friend stole all this money. So this top filmmaker wanted, everybody wanted to make a documentary of Inigo. And I basically, I own the rights to this definitive story that I wrote in New York Magazine. And then I convinced this one well-known filmmaker, instead of focusing on the negative parts of the art world, why not tell the story of Inigo? But also, like I said before, people, there's so little crime in the art world in relationship to other sectors of the economy, so much less than other people think it's a bastion of money laundering and tax evasion and all of these nefarious things, but it's just not that fun. <laughs> it's not that nefarious. Just because it's glamorized. Yeah, there. but so people think it's a lot seedier than it is. Anyway, I convinced this filmmaker, um, let's just make a story about the art world. So this was in, I wrote this article, which you haven't read, but you should. In uh, Maybe you're not allowed to access it online. I'll have to print it for you. <laughs> I wrote this story in March of 2020, and then I convinced this filmmaker. So they filmed me, uh, for over a year in Germany twice, in England twice. And all along, because Inigo was trying to get leniency in his sentencing and everyone I know who ever had any interaction with him was interviewed by the FBI and I was the only one that wasn't. Mm -hmm. So every time my doorbell rang for like over a year while he was in detention prior to his trial, I was convinced that I was gonna get arrested because he was gonna to try to throw me under the bus and concoct some, some story because he was such a pathological liar and implement me somehow. And I, that never happened because I never did anything. And I guess the reason I was never interviewed by the FBI was the fact that we did business for like four years and the last two years, it was always me sending him text messages and emails, where's my money, where's my money, where's my money? Because he owed me so much money. And so they, they had every correspondence between us and I was never aware of his borrowings and all this. But the film has yet to come out with mm -hmm. this famous documentary maker. And I think because he was hoping that I would have gotten arrested, that would have been the perfect ending to his film, me being taken away in cuffs and then he would have the juicy film that he wanted mm -hmm. and it never happened. And I'm not sure what's gonna happen with that film because I'm not famous enough to, speak to a wider audience and I haven't, I don't know, I guess the last chapter hasn't been told and he's going to sit on it for a while. The last chapter I was giving a lecture in Harvard. <laughs> That'll be fun. I'm down for doing that as soon as they take that thing off of you. But again, like in all honesty, I'm happy to give you advice about any plans you may have and help you find ways to, to showcase your works. And I think you should keep, you have to work consistently 
and because you could you could paint and draw so do it but you have to really focus and spend a lot of time honing your skills and learning more about the history of it all so you can have a better understanding of the whole universe of art stuff I think I like conceptual art better than like just putting like a lot of time into making things look more like a photograph or something no I, like I, the... I find that so boring like honestly I'd rather see someone wanking off under the fake floor than if you made a perfect simulus you know replica of a of a landscape that was done in a way that couldn't you couldn't distinguish between the real thing or the technique of a painting i have no interest that's pointless yeah maybe i should pointless. recreate my jail cell in here <laughs> yeah so ai weiwei the chinese dissident artist he was arrested and he was almost beaten to death and he made these like these like 10 boxes and inside each box which you could peer into was a replica in miniature like in three quarters of various incidents that happened where they would watch him going to the bathroom and taking a shower and he made this so you should use your experiences and make things that whether they're filmic or written or painted or drawn, draw from your experiences. And obviously, I mean, it's amazing how, I don't know, there's like three series about you or something, right? Who knows? Yeah. I don't know who can So I mean, I it's amazing up. how something which is like, you know, you think like you get more exposure than someone who's trying to cure cancer. That, <laughs> that shows you where our culture is. I mean, it's a little bit sad in a sense, but like, so it's not your, you didn't plan that. That's certainly not. Right. So now it's happened and you can just, you can, I would blow that up and use that for the rest of my life. How you felt, what the experience was like, make, make, make conceptual art, make paintings about it, drawings about it, films about it, NFTs about it. I think I should just um, redesign the space to make it like the, like Rikers visiting. That would be fucking funny. <laughs> and then you have to sit here with your hands on the top of the... <laughs> on top of the table. <laughs> Just do whatever you want. <laughs> and somebody, Shaw will play the cop. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sounds like a porno movie. <laughs> no, but it would be funny. But first of all, you should start by putting up more of your stuff and focusing on making more paintings. Mm -hmm. If that's what you like. Yeah, I find, I do find it um, very therapeutic actually to like draw. I like to do it like late at night. I don't like to do it during the day. <laughs> and you're always surrounded by pe people coming to visit you, or do you spend a lot of time on your own here? Uh, people come over all the time, yeah. I'm just like, because I'm just doing so much, or, um, yeah, so far. It's, so I've been out with since October 7th. Um, you what? I've been, like, out since October 7th. Um, I'm kind of starting to feel it a bit more because I'm just kind of doing less and, like, I'm spending more time by myself. Um, I'd love to have like a routine and not just like having, like sometimes I like, I stay up until five. Sometimes I go to bed like at 10 just because I have to like be up by five in the morning. Um, yeah, I think I'd love to have a routine and have like something when I'm doing the same thing. So funny. I spend my whole life trying not to have a routine <laughs> and you want. I just like to, I'd like to try it out because when I was in jail, I had like this thing, um, I'd be up like by seven and then because our Wi-Fi, our tablets turn on like at 8.30 in the morning. So like, this is where I would get mine. I would check my messages. I would get on the phone. So you were allowed to news. get email and stuff. Yeah. Well, we have like the GTL system where you would have to sign up for the apps. It's not like a, 
classic email that right. you have, you would need to have like a jail app. And for every message that you write me, you pay and I pay from my end. Amazing. It's like a money-making machine that yeah, I can imagine. Department of Correction. Funny because that from. would certainly change social media and email if you had to do that on the outside. <laughs> if you had to like pay to pay send everything. Every <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely curtail people's promiscuity in terms of social media. It would probably make it better, you know, because if you get rid of the advertising model and makes people more thoughtful. I mean, I tell you, I'm very OCD and very obsessive compulsive. And I am so, I admit it. I mean, these things are engineered to toy with your dopamine and your serotonin and I mean, the whole death scroll thing. I could spend just watching the reels on Instagram and all the little dog videos and cat videos yeah. and people like, <laughs> I love that shit. <laughs> it brings tears to my eyes sometimes. I admit it. Thank you so much for coming to my uh, little prison. <laughs> that was so much fun. Stay in touch. Thank you so much. <laughs> I started this conversation with Kenny, wondering if he's indeed an outsider and if his self-perception would help us connect. Kenny developed a way of looking at things that works for him and keeps him accomplishing his goals. Is he an outsider or is he the ultimate insider? I'm not sure it matters. He wants to create what he creates, connect with people through art and live a happy life. And the way he approaches things certainly maps that path for him. The Anna Delvey Show is a reunion audio and audio app production. The show is produced by Sean Glass, sound supervised and co-produced by John Eckhouse. And it makes you say, hey, oh, what the hell? Hey, when it rains. Audio app. <coughs> reunion audio?